Our Bible reading today is from John 3. I'll just wait for it to come up. From verse 22 to the end. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside, where he spent some time with them and baptised. Now John was also baptising at Anion near Salim, because there was plenty of water, and the people were coming and being baptised. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptising and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater, I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the spirit without limit. The father loves the son and has placed everything into his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Well, thank you, Caroline. Can I add my welcome to that of Rachel, too? It's so good to be here, and it's great uh, to see people who are visiting. And uh, Doug, good day, Doug. <laughs> it's good to see you here. And Uh, Today we're opening up this wonderful passage in John chapter 3. Just to explain, this week I've had the flu, um, so I've spent a fair bit of the week out of action. What that means is that today's message, I just want to say, is going to draw very heavily on Tim Keller's message on this passage, all right? So just to be upfront, Father in heaven, thank you uh, that we can come and listen to your word and that, you know, it speaks to us where we're at. And Father, help us to understand this. Please help me to be clear. And please speak into our lives and into our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So all the way through John's Gospel, we've been brought face to face with Jesus. And it's been really refreshing, right? I think it has. Uh, Today, we have John the Baptist describing Jesus as the bridegroom. John likens himself to a best man at a wedding. And his job as the best man is to get everything ready. Uh, But then he says, when the bridegroom arrives, that's my moment of joy because everything I've been working for has been for this moment. And Jesus has arrived and he, guess what? He is the bridegroom. Now, when John 
the Baptist says that Jesus is the bridegroom, he's not just looking for, he's not just using that word bridegroom to, uh, to, to service as a vehicle to describe his joy. He's speaking the truth. Jesus really is the bridegroom. He speaks of himself in these terms. Paul will speak of Jesus like this. John, in the book of Revelation, will go on to say that all the people saved by Jesus will be his bride. Heaven will be like the wedding banquet and Jesus will be the bridegroom. So it's not just a metaphor. He really is the bridegroom. Now, at that point, I want to say, what does that even mean? What does it mean that Jesus is the bridegroom? Most men, you know, who are believers, what do you do with that? Jesus is the bridegroom. Women, I mean, might be a little easier for you, but it's pretty vague, right? <laughs> what does it mean Jesus is the bridegroom? The bridegroom idea is mentioned in verse 29, but the verses both before and after unpack that core concept of bridegroom with two other ideas. The bridegroom is the Messiah, and the bridegroom is the witness from above. And that, I think, is where we begin. And if we cut to the chase, the significance for us is that he and he alone can make sense of the mystery of your life. Your life is like a jigsaw puzzle. It has so many pieces, but how does it fit together? And where is it going? You haven't seen the front cover of the box, you don't know. You've just got all the pieces. It's a mystery. And if you don't think it's a mystery, that's because you're young. <laughs> right. Just as only a, a witness to a mystery can make sense of the mystery, so Jesus is the witness who can make sense of all the pieces of the mystery that is your life. And in fact, only Jesus can complete the puzzle the puzzle that is your life, and only he knows how it is meant to look, which only he knows, we don't know. And so when he comes and he begins to do this in people's lives, what's the result? Lethal hostility towards the witness. Yes, we all love Jesus, the miracle worker, the great moral teacher, the inspiring figure, but when Jesus comes and witnesses about wrath and judgment, and sin, and the need for repentance, and faith, we reject it. Verse 32, no one accepts his testimony. What's it say about us that we reject the testimony of the one that God sends to make sense of our lives and to put us together? Doesn't that just underline how far fallen we are, how disparate the pieces are across the table? how incapable we are of putting it together, how much we still need him. Because if we look to the last verse, the outcome of rejecting the witness is to remain under God's wrath. So the bridegroom comes, but we reject his testimony. But there's, of course, another response, the polar opposite response, and that's to believe in God's son, verse 36, by accepting or receiving his testimony, verse 33. And if you do so, then suddenly we have clarity on life and what life's about and where it's going. You see, how do you know there is a God? How do you know what's the meaning of your life? How do you know the secret to your own life? 
The answers are all locked up in the testimony of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. If you reject his testimony, you live in the puzzle and darkness and the confusion of the mystery. Now, the puzzle, the puzzle for us is this today. Is it possible that any of us, to some degree or other, say we have re- accepted him and yet are still rejecting his testimony? I think there's a lot of people like this, and it's a matter of degree. To some degree, all of us who go after Jesus, we still reject his testimony. And some of us are completely lost. We might admire, we might appreciate, we might respect Jesus, but we still reject his testimony. Could it be me? Could it be you? Let's find out. Let's begin with what the bridegroom brings us. And I want to focus on this idea of him being a witness from above. The first thing a witness brings is clarity. In every good mystery, uh, you've got the knot, you know, early on, something that needs to be resolved. Someone's been murdered. Only eight people could have done it. Every one of them has an alibi. So none of them could have done it, right? But we know that couldn't have happened because someone did it. So who did it? That's how you write a mystery. There's a knot, puzzle. And then towards the end of the novel or the movie, out comes an authoritative eyewitness whose testimony makes sense of things, who cracks open the mystery. Without the testimony of the witness, you live in darkness. Now, in the same way, your own life is like this. You know there's got to be a purpose, there's got to be meaning. What is it? A lot of the people, um, a lot of people have decided that there isn't any. That's like saying someone got murdered, there are only eight people who could have done it, they all have alibis, I guess no one was murdered. Oh, but someone was, but those people aren't the murderers, so there's no answer. Maybe murder is just a construct. You can't end a mystery novel like that, you can't end your life like that. What's the purpose? The witness from above makes sense of what we already know. Tim Keller gives the illustration how one time he took a flight in a small plane from Pittsburgh to Charlottesville. I I don't know where these places are, but apparently it's over a mountain range and he flew fairly low over the mountains, low enough to see the long winding mountain road kind of snaking over and this this line of drivers, you know, slowly winding their way up. But he was low enough to see that there, were, there was frustration in the drivers, you know, they, they couldn't see far ahead enough to know if there was oncoming traffic. So, so they didn't know whether to, um, you know, to overtake or not. And, and then, but he could see, he, <coughs> he could see the whole, the whole road, the end from the beginning. And um, sometimes he saw that, you, you could go guys, you, you could go, but they didn't. And then sometimes he thought, don't go, don't go, I can see someone else coming, but then someone else does, you know, he just gets back in time when his heart's in his mouth. This passage says that Jesus Christ is the witness. Why? Because of verse 31. He is the one who comes from above. He brings his testimony from above. He brings clarity. Tim Keller said, I wished I could communicate with the drivers. I wished I could say, now, now is the time. Now is the time to pass. Or no, don't, don't at the moment. But he couldn't do it. But Jesus is the witness from above. That means he brings clarity to our lives. Why do we check the traffic on our smartphones? It's because a satellite from above is testifying truth to our phones about the congested routes. Who of you driving, you know, with your smartphone coming up on the screen, 
says, listen, why should I let, listen to satellite information? The satellite's not down here. It doesn't know what it's like on the ground. It has no idea. Of course we listen to it because it's not down here, right? Uh, its testimony is from above. That's why you listen to it. It can see the end from the beginning. It can see the whole road. The Bible says Jesus Christ is the witness. His testimony must receive because he is the man from above. It's only from the viewpoint of eternity that you can tell, for example, what to do in time. It's only from the viewpoint of up there that you can see the end from the beginning. Now, we don't like it when he tells us you've got to stop doing that and you've got to reorientate your life and have a different life goal. We don't like that, but we forget the context. He comes from above. To say, I don't like what Jesus says, it's impractical. It's like saying of the satellite, what does it know? Look, for example, at John the Baptist. What does he do? He had the right attitude. John's disciples are coming to John and saying, look, this guy Jesus, everyone's going to his church. No one's coming to ours anymore. <coughs> Excuse me. Our offerings are down 50%. What are we going to do about it? John the Baptist says, you're forgetting. I'm from below. He's from above. I'm from the road. He's from the satellite. He must increase. I must decrease. You're forgetting who he is. Do you have the mind of John the Baptist? Do you have the attitude or the humility or better yet, the wisdom of John the Baptist? Tim Keller explains it like this. He says, as a witness, Jesus Christ comes to us on two levels. He comes and speaks to us on the level of a lifestyle. He comes and tells you how to live. He says, for example, always tell the truth. He says, don't spend money on yourself. Instead, be generous to people who need it. He says, sex is dehumanizing outside of marriage, outside of a binding marriage covenant. It dehumanizes us. Inside the marriage covenant, it humanizes you. And he says, when enemies attack, make sure you respond in love, not in kind. Now, we think, or at least part of us can think, you know, that's so crazy. Who on earth thinks like that? Who lives like that? That's naive. That's ridiculous. And Jesus Christ says, well, I come from above. I can see the whole thing. I long to save you with the knowledge that I have. I see you trying to pass the trucks at the wrong time. And you almost destroy yourself. Is it possible today that you're coming to him but rejecting his testimony in one of those areas, integrity, money, sex, or conflict, because you think it's impractical? If so, you're one of the people we're talking about here. You go to him, but you reject his testimony. You forget, unlike John the Baptist, that you're from the earth. He's from above. He's not up in the, there in the plane saying, I, I just wish I could communicate to those down on the road. He's like the person in the plane broad, broadcasting out his word. And if you reject his testimony, you're like the guy on the road trying to pass, taking your life into your own hands. You're like the man who says to the satellite, what can it see anyway? And then Keller says there's a whole other level in which he comes to us, not just lifestyle. He doesn't just say, 
don't spend all your money on yourself, don't lie. On a deeper level, he speaks about the whole direction, the whole focus, the whole goal of your life. What are you living for? If we read Jesus' testimony, he's constantly saying, you're a sinner and you need to believe in me. Now, we reject that testimony in several ways. We deny we're sinners. At the moment, I'm reading this novel, which I just picked up at Sterling Library. Um, uh, the author was recommended to me. I didn't realize it's a model about a church pastor's family, actually. And um, it's very interesting because each chapter, um, uh, well, the novel progresses uh, from a different point of view of every, each member of the family in each chapter, and it sort of circulates through, and the novel progresses that way. But what makes it interesting and disturbing for me is that there is no redeeming figure of any member of the family. They're all sinners, every one of them. There's no hero. Everyone is fallen. Everyone presents in their fallenness. Oh, we don't like stories like that. We like good guys and bad guys. We like stories with heroes. That hasn't happened before. <laughs> Did someone burn the toast? Don't worry, Bruce is onto it. We're just gonna take a moment, just put your fingers in your ears. <coughs> this must be the shortest sermon ever, I think. We're <laughs> I don't detect any smoke, does anyone detect any smoke? Oh, in there? Steam. Steam. It's just steam. We can breathe easy. It's very loud, isn't it? <laughs> Go outside, you're saying. Okay, let's just go outside. <coughs> what do you do? <laughs> Simon?
funny moment at church, isn't it? <laughs> keep walking, keep walking. Oh, come in, everyone. <laughs> oh, dear. Come on in, everyone. It's <laughs> <That's> exciting. <laughs> Sorry? Come on in. Well, you know, these things happen in life, don't they? And um, <laughs> Okay. Come on in. Thanks for dealing with that so well, everyone. Sorry? Yeah. Okay. So if the fire brigade now arrive, right? Just everyone run outside screaming with your arms in the air and panicking. <laughs> All right. Um, so, weird point to pick up on, because I was just getting to the point, you know, where I was trying to say, we're all sinners, right? So, so Jesus comes to us like this, and he says, you can't whitewash yourselves, you're all sinners. We're all handicapped in our, he says to us, you're all handicapped in your love towards others because you're too wrapped up in your own self-love. You know, you seek to be your own God. You acknowledge no higher authority than your own needs or desires. That's how you live your life. You're moral so long as it profits you or enables you to look down on others. You're your own God. You worship your comfort and your, your own advancement. You want to live your life your own way without God. You want to decide what's right and wrong for you. You want to establish your own self-worth through your own performance. You want to be your own savior. Jesus comes to us and he says these sorts of things. And then he says, and here's my testimony to you. You will never be complete or happy or together as a person until you recognize that you are your own problem. Yes, the people out there, you know, we always like to pass the buck. We always want to blame someone else. But you, it starts in here. And he says, and you've got to lay down your arms. You've got to stop rebelling against me. You've got to let me be your master and your savior. Now, let me ask you, do you think that's an incredibly pessimistic and medieval view of God? 
Well, if you do, you're rejecting the testimony of he who comes from above, the man from up there, the man in heaven. Not only that, but because of this, if the Bible is right, if everyone is a sinner and that there are no good guys, that means ultimately our salvation must come from outside of ourselves. It must be free, it must be of grace. It must be of spectacular grace. No human resource could possibly do it for us. It's got to be Jesus. As the witness from above, our bridegroom brings clarity is what I'm saying. The other thing that Jesus brings as a witness from above is authority. A witness brings authority because a witness, for a mis- oh, sorry, a witness to be admissible in court, they've got to be bringing not just hearsay evidence, but they have had to have seen or heard the thing that they're talking about. Now of Jesus, we're told in verse 34, the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. What that means is that right now I am speaking words about God, but Jesus Christ speaks the very words of God. Every religious teacher only gives hearsay evidence, but Jesus gives evidence from the source. There's a certain sense in which none of us can in a primary sense be witnesses because only Jesus, he's the only one who's ever seen God face to face. If you want to know what the inside information on a family, you go and ask a member of that family. You want to know the inside information about your life, you ask the creator of that life. Jesus is the author of life. Now, to demonstrate this idea of authority, um, you know in an English class, you know, you can forever debate the meaning of a poem, what the author was intending. But when the author comes in and says, well, this is what the poem means, that's the end of the discussion. You know, you can't say, but I see the author's intent differently. You know, I have a different perspective. The author will look at you and say, what do you mean? I wrote the thing. End of discussion. They have the authority as the author. Jesus comes into your life and says, I have the authority. Do you understand this? He says, I come from heaven. I don't bring words about God. I bring the words of God. My words are different, therefore, to Buddha's words. They are different to Muhammad's words. My my words are different to your words. They're different to your psychologist's words. They're different to your pastor's words. My words have authority. You know, my words as a pastor only have authority to the degree that that they match or exhibit or, or reflect the words of Jesus because he's the only witness Okay. Now, let's ask the question, what does it mean to say that Jesus Christ is my authoritative witness, the authoritative truth bringer in my life? In the ancient Greek epic, Homer's Odyssey, the main hero, Ulysses, he wanted to hear the voice of the sirens out at sea. These um, maidens who would sing and lure people into their destruction. But he knew that if he heard their voices, he would go mad, which is what happened to other sailors. So he lashed himself to the mast of the ship, and he put wax in the ears of the rowers, and he said, when I hear the sirens, I'm gonna go crazy. So whatever I say to you at that point, do not listen to me. In other words, he puts himself 
under their authority because he knew that he was gonna have a fit of insanity out of touch with reality. He lashes himself to the mast. He takes away his own independence because he knows what is coming. Now a lot of people when they hear that belonging to Jesus means receiving his testimony and that that means to not just to say he's a clear witness but he is an authoritative witness in my life and therefore I will bind myself to whatever he says. And then people say, but I'm scared he's gonna ask me to do things that I don't wanna do. Of course he's gonna ask you to do things that you don't wanna do. What's the use of having authority? Abraham didn't want to sacrifice Isaac. Moses didn't want to go to Pharaoh. Jesus didn't want to go to the cross. But they all did, every one of them. What they did was they bound themselves to the mast. And anyone with an ounce of self-knowledge knows that by looking at your past, you see all moments of insanity. You've made all sorts of bad decisions in your life, poor priorities, acts of foolishness, impulses, acts of rage, loose words that you wish you could take back, moments of indifference where you should have cared, all sorts of things. And you know, if you're honest, there's no evidence that that's over. What are you gonna do? You bind yourself to the mast. You do so knowing that Christ will ask you to do things that don't make sense at the time, but you realize that he's the author and he knows. I bind myself to the mast and I know that there are gonna be fits of insanity and I say I bind myself under you because you're the man in the satellite. I'm here on the ground. You're the one from above. You bring the words of God. You speak words of clarity and you speak it with authority and it's exactly what I need. Now lastly, how do you receive the testimony of Jesus Christ into your life? That's the real question, is it not? How do you receive it? The answer in the modern translation, if we can have this up on the screen, in verse 33 is, whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. That word certified in our New International Versions doesn't capture the force of the original. King James Version gets it right. He that hath received his testimony hath set his seal that God is true. He sets his seal that God is true. They set their seal. Do you know what that means? Rich and powerful people used to have signet rings with their insignia on the ring. And the way they would sign a contract is that they would set their seal to it. That's the same as signing on the dotted line. To set your seal to something means you have bound yourself to it. Why is it that people like to live together uh, before marriage? It's very, very simple. They say, I like this person, but I don't want to set my seal on the relationship. Because to set your seal means to lose your independence. You've obligated yourself. You can't walk off just nearly as easily. You see that? What you've happened, you've, you've made yourself vulnerable when you get married. Far more vulnerable, far more obligated. You've set your seal, you've, you've made a legal contract with that person. What does it mean to receive the testimony of Jesus? What does it mean to set your seal to him? It doesn't mean I'm just gonna give him a try. I'm gonna see whether or not he helps me. That's like someone taking someone else and sleeping with them on a one night stand and saying I love you but I don't wanna set my seal to you. What did Beyonce say? If you liked it, you should have put a ring on it, right? 
What it means to set your seal to Jesus is to say, here's my life, I hand it over. To set your seal to Jesus Christ is to say, I bind myself to do whatever you say. Anything that you say for me to do in your word, I will do. And you and I might say, well, that's pretty scary, isn't it? Well, there are two kinds of people here to speak to, and we're finishing with this. To those who've been religious, those who've been raised in a religious atmosphere surrounded by lots of rules, you might say, what you're laying on me here <coughs> um, is what I once had, and I don't want it anymore. I was oppressed with guilt. I don't want to go back to it. To which I would say, you still don't get it. To set your seal to Jesus Christ and to everything else he says includes the gospel, and the gospel is you're not saved by your performance, you're saved by Christ, by what he has already done. Which means if you are crushed under guilt, you've set your seal to yourself. You think salvation is all about you, but it's not. You need to receive the testimony from above, your bridegroom, and now we get to the point. When we think of bridegroom, we tend to think of the nervous young man standing at the front of the church, um, who's excited, who's hoping, hoping desperately that everything will work out all right for he and for his bride. When the Bible speaks about the bridegroom, it is not speaking about someone who's uncertain. It is speaking about the Messiah. And it comes from Psalm 45. That Psalm describes the Messiah in bridegroom terms. But in the Psalm, he's first described as a victorious warrior king. He rides into battle glorious and resplendent in majesty. And this is Jesus who has come to save us. It is not about us, Salvation, it's about him. He's not the nervous groom standing at the front desperately hoping that things will work out. He's the confident king riding into battle and achieving a great victory. He wins the victory over our guilt and our failure and our punishment, not us. And more than that, then Psalm 45 speaks of his royal bride. The victorious warrior king is also a bridegroom. And his bride is beautiful and lucky. She is honored above all others. Now if you're the sort of person who says you've received Jesus' testimony but you're still crushed under guilt, you've still set your seal to yourself You've basically said, I'm the one who must ride my little donkey into battle, hoping desperately that things will be okay. When you have a bridegroom who has ridden there already, and he has accomplished everything for you that you yourself could not. Secondly, there are a lot of us who've who've accepted Jesus, who've said, yeah, we've set our seal to him, I've received his testimony, and yet, let me just ask or say, isn't it true that a lot of the clarity and authority in your life that should be there just isn't? 
Why do you lack a lot of the authority and clarity that should be there in your life if the testimony of Jesus is in your life? It's because setting your seal is a thing that you did once when you got converted, but the thing is, you have to continually renew it. So this year, Narelle and I celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary by the grace of God. Um, but I told Narelle, I love you, when I married her. I set my seal to her, March 21st, 1992. But it's no good if when she says, do you love me, I say, well, I told you I married you, I loved you back on the 21st of March, 1992. What more do you want? I set my seal to you back then. She says, I'm sorry, I like that renewed every so often. Maybe the lack of authority and clarity in your life is because the word of God, the word of Christ, is not dwelling in you richly. It says in Hebrews 3.13, we should exhort one another daily, lest we be hardened and deceived by sin's deceitfulness. So do you have anyone in your life that you mutually exhort with the word of God? Do you have anyone in your life you're talking to about the word of God? Do you sing the words of Christ to one another in your household? Do you constantly point with joy to the words? Do you have people who do that for you? Does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Do you find yourself saturating yourself in it? Do you find yourself praying it into your life? Are you continually renewing the setting of your seal to the testimony of Jesus Christ? Because if not, or until you do, you're not going to have that clarity and authority in your life that comes to those who have received his testimony. He is from above. He's here to save you with his knowledge. He's not like me in the, aer in the airplane <coughs> without a microphone. He speaks and you can hear him and you can set your seal to him. Let's pray, Father in heaven, thank you that Jesus comes to us from above. Thank you that he is the witness. He speaks words of truth and thank you that he is um, the Messiah and that together these things mean that he is our bridegroom. He's the ultimate, he's our destination and he's our savior and he can pull us together. Father, thank you that he makes sense of the mystery of our life. And Father, for any of us who have been burdened by guilt, please help us to do that, that, that thing we must, which is to set our seal to him, to bind ourselves to him, not to ourselves. And we need your help in that. And we pray also that your word would dwell in us richly so that we would hear his testimony. In Jesus' name, amen.